0: Hi and welcome to the Thinking Jewish Podcast where we share meaningful and relevant Jewish content. Tune in as we explore relevant ideas. This podcast will give you a new perspective and understanding of living Jewish. Hi everyone, welcome to the Jewish Thinking Podcast. It's been a while since we've dropped some episodes and we have some really exciting episodes. So keep a lookout for those episodes that are going to be dropped and they will keep you company throughout the, the winter holidays now. And uh, after that, also, I hope these are episodes that someone can always refer back to when they want to learn about something and uh, reference back. And uh, continue the exploration of really important ideas and meet really uh, important people that have something to share about the foundations of what I consider every single Jew should know. So we have we have back over here today, Rabbi Moshe Friedman. R- Ramosha, when when we first had him on the podcast, uh, the the feedback that we got was um, was amazing and. Um, the retention rate on that podcast, especially, was extremely high, and therefore, it gives me the break, a great pleasure to bring back Rabbi Moshe Friedman to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Rabbi fee and thank you for the feedback.
0: Okay, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna go back a bit. Last time we dove, we we dive straight into the questions. This time, I'd like to go, uh, take a step back and really first understand your journey. And um, I guess let's where it started, so our listeners can hear a bit more about you, a bit a bit more, and get to know you a bit more.
1: So I suppose that my journey, in one context, is pretty run of the mill, but in another context, is pretty new and different. Um, I was certainly uh, not raised very religious. My parents were traditional. I guess in the United States. We don't have a United Synagogue, but that would be the equivalent of how I was raised You know, my parents going to an Orthodox synagogue, but us not being particularly observant. Um, and I grew up with a sense that Judaism was nice, culturally interesting, but there wasn't much substance to the reasons why we did what we did. So, for example, I grew up not eating cheeseburgers, but whenever I asked the question, why milk and meat specifically, why not popcorn and, uh, you know, and Snickers bars, like, wh- wh- why are these two things, the things that cannot be put together, there were no good answers. And so eventually, I kind of began to saw to see Judaism as a little bit of a shell, maybe as something of empty tradition, or as a holdover of the old superstitions. Um, and so as I grew and as I moved um, away from home I started to just get rid of all the Jewish baggage in my closet uh, until there was a certain point in my university career where I was barely even identifying as Jewish right and And I certainly wasn't that
0: that experience itself that that beginning experience where many people brought up in Traditional homes, without giving the reasoning behind things, share sharing that journey as well. Where if they're just told to do something without the reasoning behind it, that is um, a very difficult act to follow. Especially when today there are so many different options and lifestyles to be able to go and live. Unless there's really a firm and ground reasoning for the way I should live my life, then it's, it's difficult to to continue on an, on your parents' journey.
1: Well, I've seen two different ways of dealing with that type of upbringing. Uh, to be honest, a potentially more common way of dealing with it is simply to just keep it as a nice cultural artifact. Like, why do I need to look more into it? It satisfies my, you know, my desire for something nice to do on the holidays. Uh, it builds nice community. And so that's as, as skin deep as it needs to be. And so people don't question the fact that they didn't have to question and they don't question the fact that there weren't very many answers. Um, and that's how they maintain, and depending on if they marry a Jew or if they, you know, or if somebody comes in who believes something more strongly into their life, they'll either remain where they are or they'll slowly but eventually uh, let go of those traditions. There is another type of person who let's say is the truth seeker, the person who cannot be satisfied with something that's kind of half true and doesn't really connect all the dots. For those people, it's really bothersome that they grow up with something that has so many holes in it. And so those people will either strive strongly to find something true or uh, or they'll just get rid of it altogether. Right. So
0: you are I I assume you fit more into the the second category of uh, of those two of those two categories. And so if you were on your journey to university and at that point you were questioning a lot of the surface deep um, cultural Judaism that you were brought up into.
1: Yes, I was certainly questioning a lot of the surface deep um, things that I had been given in terms of Judaism. And then there was a certain point where I truly went on a journey of self-discovery and I tried to figure out, well, what is real? What is true? And I came to a point where I thought, well, this is not true. And I'm not even sure if God exists. So um, so there was a certain point in my life where I just basically threw away everything. I, I, was no, I could not maintain the cognitive dissonance of saying, I don't believe this. I don't believe a word of, of anything that this means or anything that this says. And yet I'm still not eating cheeseburgers. So at a certain point, I acted on what I believed or what I didn't believe, and I I basically just aligned my action with my beliefs. And I said, I'm just not doing anything. So no more fasting on Yom Kippur, no more keeping kosher, nothing. You, you were at university at the time. What, what were you studying at the time? At the, studi- at the time, I was studying economics, which kind of goes hand in hand with the idea that like things are pretty scientific. People have de- desires. People have demands. You fulfill them with supply. And the world works in a pretty scientific, analytical way um but i would have to say that <clears throat> you know sometimes you have to clear out the baggage before you can bring in something new so sometimes you have to be able to plow the field a little bit before you can plant a seed and for me this this was a bit of a creative destruction if you will the act of letting go of all the empty shells actually freed me up to to realize that there actually was something that I was looking for and then I wasn't sure what it was and the, the old Judaism wasn't doing it. And so what I found was a, I was slowly introduced to a new world of Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, yoga, meditation, and all these types of alternative methods of spirituality. So in, in getting rid of and emptying myself of the, the emptiness of old tradition and religion let's say I found that I actually very much was a spiritual person and I happened to find spirituality in these other traditions and so that kind of set me back on the path to okay now if there's a truth with the capital T now if there is a path with a capital P so then what path should I be following And that's what led me to the next few years of my university career, trying to figure out what was the correct path. And so that led me through a lot of studying of Buddhism, a lot of other types of Indian philosophy, of which there are several, and even to things like Christian philosophy. And the last, last place that I looked was back at Judaism, a few years later, when I no longer had any baggage and no longer felt like I was traumatized by my youth. I could then take a clear and sober look at what Judaism had to offer, and uh, and to be honest, it was it was incredibly surprising.
0: Okay, so you're 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 starting now your journey into Judaism again, and um, I want to just sort of give a foreshadow to what we're going to be exploring next is. And you, believe, I assume that, that today you are a rabbi. That means you, you feel that like you found the truth and that there is a truth to be found in the world.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it was a slow process. Uh, at, at first, it was just, this is a nice idea. And this is a nice truth that fits in with all the other truths that I've been thinking about. Um, eventually, I became a bit more intellectually honest. And I realized that There are multiple truth claims. Everybody is telling you that they've got the truth. And even though there are some philosophies that will say everyone's got the truth, there's bits of the truth. At the end of the day, uh, there are certainly truth claims which contradict other truth claims. So although Buddhism will have you think that like every path is the correct path, they have their own metaphysics which will disagree very strongly with Abrahamic traditions. And even within the Abrahamic traditions, Christianity, Islam and Judaism, those certainly contradict each other. And so you can't say, well, I believe in it all. It doesn't really make sense. Um, There has to be eventually one. And everyone's claiming, well, we know what God says. And you have to be able to evaluate those claims.
0: Okay, so let's let's now look at this truth that you found within Judaism. And what I'd start with is, um, so how how can a rational person um, find the truth within Judaism? Or can a rational person find the truth within, within Judaism?
1: Okay, well, my simple answer is yes. Uh, but <clears throat> let's take a step back because I think that before we talk about Judaism, I kind of took it for granted that there's being able to find the truth about God. Now. I happen to think that's a two-step process. There's belief in God and there's belief in the, the truth claims of the Torah. I would say that when it comes to belief in God, um, you have to you have to be a bit um, more discerning here. Um, when I say that there's a way of arriving at rational truth, I certainly think there is tremendous amounts of rational evidence for the existence of God. Let, let's take away let 's imagine that we're totally non spiritual beings we 're not acting on feelings we 're not acting on anything. Um, all we' are doing is weighing the evidence and the data so you could look at the harmony and beauty of the universe you could contemplate how is it possible for something to come from nothing um, as opposed to saying that the universe just created itself or the universe is always eternal uh, you could you could evaluate a lot of these very old evident proofs that are given for the existence of God and I would say that that those are pretty strong claims now at the same time and the proof is in the pudding you could have many many people look at those truth claims and say yes but you could just look at it slightly differently you could look at it the other way around that yes you could say there's harmony in the universe and at the same time there's a lot of chaos in the universe or this universe got it right, but there were multiple universes that didn't get it right. right? And you could also ask lots of questions on the first mover argument. And all the arguments that we've given, there have been philosophers over time who have offered uh, alternative claims to say, well, you don't have to look at it that way. So I, I think that uh, now I still think that you're more, it's a more rational, it's a more likely Um, explanation that there is a God, then not, uh, if you were to look at things purely rationally. But I also think that um, pure reason may not be able to take you 100% of the way. It could probably take you 90% of the way, but the last 10% requires something else. And this is hinted to by Maimonides and many of the Jewish philosophers, which is when they talk about our relationship with the existence of God, they use two verbs, one is to know, and one is to ha Amin to have emuna now I don't want to translate that as belief or maybe necessarily even faith, because those words are in my understanding not so accurate um, there is there is knowledge, there is the knowledge that God exists, which is all the rational things that I've spoken about um, and then there's a final thing called emuna. Now there are multiple even within the Jewish tradition, multiple explanations and definitions of what emunah is. Uh, I happen to think that there is a particularly compelling one, which is offered by uh, Hasidut, the Hasidic tradition, which is that emunah is not uh, belief in the sense of uh, claims about the world that I just can't back up. It's not emunah in the sense of faith or faithfulness, which is a common definition that even jewish people like to give that faith means that i knew something was true but now i can't see it anymore i still think that where does that clarity come from you, 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 what you're really just saying is yes there is a rational way to prove it but i just don't remember it anymore or i can't identify it with anyone.
0: it's commonly known as a leap of faith
1: yes well i think there, well there's there's the leap of faith there's like yeah. i can't prove it at all there's the faithfulness which is once upon a time, I had clarity, and even when I can't see the clarity, I still believe it, which I also don't necessarily think is something that you can use as faith. I think there's a third alternative, which is the definition of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, who said that emunah is not knowledge. It's actually a state of consciousness. It's a state of consciousness. And the state of consciousness tells us that there is a type of knowing, so to speak, which involves things that are not, I know that two plus two equals four, right? Um, many of the older traditions will say that there are actually four types of knowing, right? There's propositional knowledge, which is I know that something is. There's, um, <clears throat> there's knowledge of how to do something, right? I know how to swim. Then there's, um, then there's per- perspectival knowledge, which is to know, to be able to empathize and know what, what somebody else is pointing to you is to be able to to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and then there's something called participatory knowing right now um this would be the best example of this would be if you go back to to the beginning of genesis right and it says that adam knew his wife now we know that that's a metaphor for for being engaged in marital uh relations right now it's strange because today We don't use knowledge as a euphemism for relations and the question is why and the reason why is because the way that we think of knowing things is not like intimacy it's like eating right i consume information so there used to be a way of knowing which was incredibly intimate which was participatory which meant that you were involved and completely um, connected to something and that's how you know that it is. And I would say that that's what Imuna is. That's what the Baal Shem Tov says. Emuna is Devekut. Emuna is total binding and oneness with the thing that, you're, that is known. And that's not something I can prove to other people. That's not something I can show you in a graph or in a, in a logical proof. That's something that must be experienced in order to be known. <clears throat> the problem is that the Western world doesn't really acknowledge that as a type of real academic that's note. not
0: empirical evidence that's not, it's more of an emotional feeling that a person can feel connected to to right. hashem to be, to be connected to God. right i would
1: say that it's it's not it, we call it emotions <laughs> but i would call it experiences i'd call it a state of consciousness right mm-hmm. um for those so how, who do, how do you practice... know
0: so just just to pay devil's advocate over here how yeah. do you know that that experience just can you give me an example of that of that experience and then I'm going to, my follow-up question to that will be, let's say it's some amazing feeling. I also get an amazing feeling when I have a delicious ice cream and there's, there's a tingling inside of me, there's a good feeling inside of me. How do I know the difference and that one is a real experience um, and one isn't? And another example would be, let's say I'm at a and I feel really connected. Is that me connecting spiritually or is that me like, saying, wow, this is something that I am enjoying, but not necessarily is that a
1: state of consciousness of connection to a, a God? Okay, so I will tell you that that there has been a lot of research done in neuroscience of people who have reached higher states of consciousness, okay? These are things that are documented, and they they describe this thing, what is called the the pure state, the state of pure being, where there are states of consciousness that a person can achieve through various means, through meditation, through fasting, through drum circles and dancing, and, and indeed, through, uh, through mind-altering substances, where a person can reach a state of consciousness that actually, to them, it is more real than reality itself. The state of consciousness, it, they experience it as being more real than when you're in your normal state. Let me give you an example. When you go to sleep and you dream and you wake up, you realize that you were in a dream. The dream state didn't feel more real than when you wake up. You wake up and you're like, oh, that obviously wasn't real. That was a dream. This is the opposite. These states of consciousness, when you enter them, you say, wow, my regular waking state is is like a dream compared to this. And And the evidence of that is that these people actually perform better, are happier, and are more successful in their lives when they enter this state. People who regularly report being in this state actually are better at life than people who are not. So you tell me that's a delusion and I'll tell you, okay, fine. But it sounds like that delusion is better adapted to reality than ours. Now, I would say that there is an example of knowing this type of knowledge that's not just a feeling where you can, uh, you can experience it, but you cannot prove it to somebody else. Okay, here's the example. Can I have perfect clarity and knowledge that I exist? Now, as much as I can experience that, I can never prove it to you because for you, I may either be a robot or I might be a figment of your imagination. But for myself, I can have the overwhelming clarity that I exist. And you might say, well, maybe that's a delusion. Maybe you just feel that way. And I would tell you that for the person who has truly affirmed, their own existence they can tell you with absolute clarity that that's not a delusion can i prove that to you again it's not some it's something that that exists outside of logic and that it exists outside of reason but i would say that the person who is capable of of finding that immovable point of of the self that's the first step towards finding that immovable point of god
0: Okay. So I'm- when, when, you, when you said ninety percent rational ten percent um, experiential or state of consciousness, um, I, I, am, I, am I wrong in saying it's actually it's a hundred percent in terms of rational that like there is enough rationality of that for me to have a, a firm knowledge um, and of God and there's also on top of that hundred percent knowledge evidence there's also the state of consciousness that, the, the state of feeling that I can experience as well. Or is it 90% but that's not enough and I also need that state of consciousness?
1: So if you're asking my opinion in my own experience, I don't think that a person can get all the way there because I've seen people who have very incredible philosophical minds and there will always be something philosophical that casts doubt on what they can know is true, what they can know is real. The problem with the, the beauty of philosophy is that it's a, it's a technique for h- how to approach a question and how to be able to analyze a question and, <clears throat> and, um, and, get, and get to certain types of answers and use analytical tools to be able to get there. The problem with philosophy is that, is that the very foundations of philosophy themselves can be questioned. The very foundations of knowledge can be questioned. And there is no ground floor to be able to stand on, because can I can me, question can the ground example? floor. Can you give an example of
0: that? Please? Can I
1: give you an example of yeah. that? Well, Kant, Immanuel Kant basically said, um, what I perceive as reality actually has nothing to do with reality itself. When I look at colors, when I look at shapes, I look at a lamp as I'm staring at a lamp right now, and I see that it's silver. It's like, I actually have no, no idea what the true lamp is. Um, everything is filtered into my, my subjective way of looking at the world. And I can have no way of knowing that what I'm perceiving in any way lines up with reality itself. So poof, you've just eliminated your ability to arrive at any sort of truth, right? Immanuel Kant said that there are certain ways, there are certain you know, truths that are eternal and universal, but you know, people then came along and argued with him. So, uh, so, so philosophy can never get you to absolute 100% truth. Because philosophy is much better at showing you how to be skeptical of a certain argument than it is at trying to arrive at anything that's absolutely true. It's a, it's, it's a project that undoes itself.
0: Okay. So let's, let's go back to your journey and your, you know, you're being introduced to Judaism. What, what gave you, what gave you the the foundations that made you want to start practicing to, to live life as a Jew? What, what arguments were you hearing that said, this is, these are, this is something I've never heard before. This is something which has very strong foundations. And I, you know, it come, come any question that might be thrown at me, I think I have enough over there to, to give me the strong standing to be able to start keeping a life of Torah mitzvahs.
1: Okay. So if you'll recall, for me, at the point where I encountered Judaism seriously for the first time, I was about 22. At that point, I already had a strong truth, knowledge um, of God so i'm asking I, what what was it what well was it that gave you i thought sense? so are you asking about god or are you asking about torah because i'm, I'm telling you that it's a two-step process mm. i found god let's let's, let's
0: found... say one let's say one um strong argument for for a rational person to believe in god and then we'll move to to torah afterwards
1: okay so i mean a- as i said right god has multiple multiple ways of approaching right for me, I suppose the strongest rational evidence for God is simply to say that it is very, it is more irrational to say that the universe came from nothing or that the universe always existed or that there are multiple universes as opposed to saying there is something that created the universe. There is nothing in space and time that I can look around at and say it had no beginning. There is nothing like that. And so if I were to extrapolate out I would say that ha- how could it be that if everything I look at, my phone, my glasses, my computer, myself, everything that I look at around me had a beginning. Um, so inductively, I would say, well, therefore, it must be the universe had a beginning. And if I don't say that, then basically, I'm saying, well, I'm willing to make an exception. I'll go out on a limb. I have no proof for this. I have no, I have no real reason to say that the universe is, is an exception. But I think that the universe is the only thing that created itself. So for me, that seems strongly irrational. Is it possible the universe created itself? Sure, but why would you have any reason to say that the universe is any different from anything else that we, that we observe? So to say that the universe started, came from nothing or that it's always been around, which also we don't see anything that's eternal, um, <clears throat> that to me is the strongest indication that there must exist something outside of the universe that, uh, that was the cause of the universe, right? And then you'll ask me, okay, well, what was the cause of that thing? Well, eventually, eventually uh, logically speaking, you go back to a source of causes because otherwise you'll just say, well, all the causes are eternal. And then I go back to you and I say, well, eternity is not something that we necessarily see here so you're just you're just uh moving the goalposts a little bit
0: okay thank you um one of the things on the catholic questions that always come up is um who created god
1: right well that's what i'm saying is that eventually you get back to the thing that encompasses everything Mm -hmm. and then at that point you say there is it's not a logical statement to say who created god right because if you if you eventually say well Whatever is limited clearly has something outside of it that created itself, right? Limited either in space or in time or in concept, right? Something that's partially good or something that's partially covers all of reality. Eventually, there's something, eventually, there's something outside of that, right? And and eventually, you get to a point where you say that there is everything boils down to a unity uh, beyond which there is nothing else. So that's when you hit God. That's when you hit God.
0: That's not based on cause and effect. It's something beyond cause and effect. You got okay. it. This is amazing. So then, so could you take us now through the next step on your, on your journey?
1: Yeah, so of course the next step was to say, all right, if there is a God, if there is a unity to everything, and that's, that was kind of the way that I was expressing it to myself before I had the language of God and Torah is simply the unity from which everything derives. And that unity by definition being something that, is compassionate and and connected um as opposed to something that's far away and distant right it is something that is inherently one and so we are part of it and it and it is part of us then i tried to figure out well okay well if there is that that overwhelming sense of oneness and unity in the universe then that must mean that there is something that is true and that must mean that i'm capable of arriving at that truth because otherwise the world is a pretty it's, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, it's like a, it's like a terrible sick joke to, to be placed into a world and not be told how to, to, to exist in it. So I thought, all right, well, there's got to be a way of arriving at that truth. So I started looking around, started looking around Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, Christian philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were, you know, there were a lot of compelling ideas, but, but then again, of course, as I said, everyone has a certain truth claim. The, uh, the Buddha sat under the, the the tree and arrived at enlightenment and he said this is truth and you know jesus said this is truth because of god what what, what god told me and muhammad said this is truth because of what god told to me um what struck me very singularly was that the, the torah's truth claim was unique to every other religious truth claim and uh, and you may be familiar with this which is the, the idea of of national revelation which sure. is that every, everybody else, virtually, and I, I'm, I say virtually because I'm, I'm 99% sure that this is, this is how it works with every other religion on the planet, is that there is one person who says that I have revealed the truth of God, and uh, that person's very char- charismatic, very wise, very, you know, very cryptic, and people believe that person, that individual, There is only one religion whose truth claim is based not on the testimony of an individual, but on the contrary, is based on the testimony of every member of that society. And that is the Torah. That the foundational moment of, of acceptance of Torah and belief in Torah came at Mount Sinai when the Jewish truth claim was that every single Jew... In a, who was alive at that time um, experienced God, and experienced God giving over the, the commandments. And if that's true, then, um, well, for, for, for various reasons that many other people have gone into, and we could do it briefly here, but for various reasons, that is, that is by far the most ironclad, most rational um, evidence or rational claim. Of, of possessing the truth of God that exists.
0: Right, so I'm saying you get, you know, the the national revelation uh claim of the Jewish people is, you know, we've uh, we've we've taught that a few times. Could you maybe, um, for the benefit of our listeners, what do you say the main two questions that you get on that uh, talk or that claim of the Jewish people that you receive, and what do you say to them?
1: Well, one claim, I mean, one. One question that frequently comes up is, well, you know, isn't it possible to fabricate uh, a claim of national revelation? Isn't it possible that eventually at some point in history, people just started saying that everybody that, you know, everybody stood at Mount Sinai? Right. Can't we interject a false claim like that? So one answer to that is to say, um, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. If you try to if you try to bring interject a a claim about one individual or even a small group of individuals, then there's no way to falsify that claim. In other words, you can't check if that claim is true or not, which makes it easier to believe. Right. We know that the way that cults begin is by making claims that can't be checked or verified. If I said, if all of a sudden people started saying all of your ancestors stood at Mount Sinai, then um, that's a claim that's very easily verifiable by everyone, which is, well, that's funny. Let me go ask my parents and grandparents if they also have this tradition. Right. And the answer is they don't. So it is it, it is theoretically not possible to be able to interject that claim now. Even now, the stronger answer to that, and this is something that I credit to Rabbi Kellerman, the stronger answer to that is e- even if it were possible. Let then, if it were possible, and assuming that the national revelation claim is the strongest claim possible for a truth claim, because basically you're saying that it's not based on the charismatic uh, uh, belief in one individual, but rather everybody backs it up, right? You and I if one person said something's true, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. If a thousand people all said that they saw a UFO, we'd have a lot stronger reason to believe them all, right? And if every single person on the planet said they saw it, then we'd have to accept it as true. So, so too, if one person said they spoke to God, okay, maybe they're, maybe they're right, maybe they're not. If a million people spoke to God, then we would be pretty, it would be extremely difficult to say that that's not true. So if that is the strongest truth claim, then That truth claim should have been attempted multiple times in history. If that is the strongest way to get people to believe in your religion, and it's possible to to interject it falsely, then let's see multiple examples of where this has happened. And the answer is, it's never happened. People haven't even attempted it because it's not possible to interject a false truth claim that everybody saw God. So the proof is in the pudding. The, the God of the Jewish people is the God of history. We look at history and we say, well, when else did this happen? And the answer is it never happened any other time. That is uniquely, singularly bizarre. If you want to say that it is entirely possible to get an entire group of people to believe in a, truth, a false truth claim or a made-up truth claim of national revelation.
0: Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. My my next question I will ask is, let's say, you know, someone is, how does someone remain um, open to hearing different perspectives? Like, you know, you came from a background where you seem to have gone on your own intellectual journey to try and discover it. You were open to hearing those new ideas, but many, many people do find it difficult to to change from one perspective to another. So how, how is a person able to hear different perspectives? And I'll also ask you the opposite question as well, is let's say I come from a, a religious upbringing I was brought up from, so how, how, do I, how am I convinced that what I'm hearing is not, I'm not only just hearing because I want to hear that from my perspective, but rather this is something that is a universal truth if a person really intellectually just um, studies it.
1: Well, to answer your second question first, which is if a person has grown up religious and so they have a lot of investment in being religious and wanting it to be true, that's an extremely difficult thing. Uh, An individual, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it is very difficult to be able to separate yourself from that, to say from a totally unbiased point of view, can can I try to evaluate these truth claims? Now, I would like to say that there's, there has to be some way of extricating yourself enough to be impartial, right? Um, we're always biased as human beings, and, it, and yet at the same time, we believe in the idea that it's possible for an individual to, to get to some level of impartiality, for example, as a judge, it's possible, right? Extremely difficult, but possible, okay, fine. But for somebody who, let's say, didn't come from that, from that perspective, how would they be open to hearing these truth claims so I would say sorry um, so for somebody who so for somebody who didn't come from this tradition and they've lived their life either as a cultural jew or as you know as somebody who's totally unaffiliated, um, how would this person come to a uh to really trying to evaluate these ideas fairly so i would um I would say that the first place, a person will only take the time and the effort to evaluate these claims if it's important to that person. If this is a cherry on the top, whether God exists or not, whether the Torah is true or not, I could take it or leave it, then I'm not going to invest enough time and energy and emotional energy to, to trying to figure out if this is really real. A question will... Not get me to change very much. But a crisis will get me to change. If I see this as existentially essential for what it means to be a human being, if I say the most important question I can ask myself is, is there a God? And then after that is, if there is a God, then what does God want from me? And for me, that keeps me awake at night and that that will force me to change everything I know about life and, and the way that I live. Because it's that important to me, then I will take the time to trying to figure out what is true. But if I don't, if if I'm not invested in the question, then I don't think anybody is going to really want to listen because the cost far outweighs the benefit. The cost of asking these questions is very great. A person may ask these questions and may seriously be forced to reevaluate their life, the things that are meaningful and important to them, the career that they want to pursue. Not always, not, you know, a lot of people's careers stay the same before or after becoming religious, but certainly the values and the priorities that they have in their life. Who wants to go through that? That's a painful and costly process to admit that you're wrong, to admit that you haven't been, you know, going in the path that 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 really is the, the most beneficial path. That's not an easy thing to think, but for the person who's truly bothered by these questions, the unexamined life is more painful than any changes that they would have to make after having examined it.
0: Wow. So according to what you're saying, for most people, I might be wrong, for most people that are, this, if you're an intellectual person, if you're someone who's who studies uh, academia rigorously, rigorously, then this is a journey that a, a person is most likely to take. Whereas for someone who's, who's not so fast, who doesn't, doesn't really bother them too much, what academia says, what philosophy says, then there's less likelihood of them discovering the truth of the Torah and the truth of God.
1: I don't think it's a question of being academic or philosophical. I think it's more experiential. To quote, uh, there's this term that people are using that, that people are feeling a god-shaped hole in their lives. In other words, there are some people who are simply existentially bothered by the lack of meaning that the 21st century, or the fact that you know a, living in a godless society, um, presents to them. There is something fundamentally missing. Those people are going to be the ones who are looking for something. Um, there are other people who may have found that partially in, for example, being, you know, being a sports fan, right? That gives you community, a sense of purpose, right? Something to cheer for other people. Maybe it's in politics, right? Ah, this is how we're gonna change history. Now my life has purpose, it has meaning, it has community, right? There there are all kinds of semi-replacements for this, which will tend to gloss over that that lack and that hole there are other people who will simply be able to ignore that sense through distraction and entertainment. Um, Distraction and entertainment, by the way, entertainment literally means to hold between. Entre, between. Tain, tenir, means to hold between. It's, It's something to keep you there in between the main act, right? So entertainment means you're just you're just, you know, in between things that are actually really matter. Wow. So people, I
0: really like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So people can remain in that middle space forever, right? You can keep running away from the deep, hard questions because they bother you and because, they're, because they require real effort and real sacrifice. We, are, we have gotten extremely, extremely good at, uh, at entertaining ourselves and filling all of the silence with, uh, with distractions.
0: Wow, that that's a, a really beautiful place to end this uh, conversation with you, Robert Freeman. Uh, Ramosha, I, I cannot thank you enough for your for your time this morning. Uh, you've just opened up a, a whole new world to to many of our listeners over here, and I'm sure they'll have plenty more questions. And like I said the first time, we'd love to bring you back on the show. I'm sure there will, there will be a follow up to this, and I, I hope that you will uh, join us again at some point in the future so we can follow up this conversation and hear more of your journey to um open up this this um this subject more and learn more from your wisdom
1: it's always wonderful to open up existential crises over coffee with you rabbi (laughs) thank
0: you very very much thank you rabbi freeman and um Thank you to all our listeners today. Please, this is, uh, if you have enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends. Please uh, continue to pass this on to other people. And um, thank you all so much. and wishing you a wonderful day.